0: I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things that it feels like a therapist can't say. So for a few weeks now, I've been reflecting on the conversation that I shared with you last time that I had with Silvana Espinosa lau about therapeutic goal setting. And sometimes when I'm contemplating the topics that I want to share with you on here, I get the same feeling that I sometimes get when I'm trying to sort out a challenging case, a client that I'm having some difficulty finding a way in with, and the feeling that I'm talking about is best represented by this image in my head that goes with it of a really knotted up ball of yarn or string. The kind of knotted up yarn ball where it's really thick and tight and there's no ends sticking out and you have to like feel around for a loop that's looser than the others and try pulling at that. And if there's like a hole, you can kind of stick your finger in and try to figure out a place to start really getting in there and turning this big tangle of knots back into a piece of yarn again. So that knotted up yarn ball feeling, the yarn ball with no ends sticking out. That's the feeling I've been having as I've been thinking about this episode. So just FYI, I'm about to really belabor this yarn metaphor. So fair warning. But I've been sitting here with this knotted up yarn ball with no ends sticking out thinking I have nothing interesting to say about this. There's nowhere for me to go in. I keep, you know, tugging at a loop and stopping because there's just a big knotted mess behind it. But then I'm realizing, okay, it can't actually be true that I have nothing to say about it because I'm not starting and then running out of yarn, getting to the end of something. What I've realized is happening is that when you set out to look at the topic of setting goals in therapy in anything more than a superficial light, you relatively quickly, very quickly actually, start running into the question of what therapy is. That's the knot. The knot is, what is therapy anyway? The little fiddly loops of yarn are therapeutic goal setting. And then wherever we go in with that, the question of what is therapy looms pretty much immediately underneath. So what is it about that? In order to examine the topic of therapeutic goals deeply and honestly, why do we first have to reckon with the question of what therapy is? Well, first of all, the existence of therapeutic goals as a thing implies something important about what therapy is. Therapy is a goal-directed activity. We aren't just passing the time. It's supposed to accomplish something. I think we can all agree on that. I think that You know, no matter whether the goals you set for or with your clients are extremely specific and granular, you're practicing X skills, Y number of times per week, or on the other end of the spectrum, your therapeutic goals are completely unarticulated and maybe very broad. You're simply joining with your client in an open-ended process of unfolding. The intention is to get somewhere different than you started. And if you don't, it didn't work. And that's the most common complaint about therapy, right? It didn't work. Someone will say, I went to therapy. It was okay. It didn't really do anything. I came out the same. In my experience, this complaint is more common than people complaining about having gotten therapy that was actively bad. And before I go on, I do want to say as common as that is, it's not the majority of people's experience. The majority of clients say therapy helped them. So don't start to spiral here. In aggregate, we're doing amazing, sweetie. By and large, the majority of the time we achieve something, we set out to achieve something and we do achieve something most of the time in therapy. So what is it that we are setting out to achieve? What's the goal in the goal-directed activity of therapy. And you're not going to get out of this one with an it depends. I know that trick. I've pulled that rabbit out of that hat many a time. Your magic doesn't work on me. I'm talking about what is the overarching goal that we all share that makes therapy therapy. Given all its diverse theories and all its diverse delivery systems and all the different beliefs about what works in therapy, why, and all the various smaller goals that emerge from those differences, given all of that, what is the umbrella we can all sit under? What, broadly speaking, is the big goal of therapy we can all agree on? Maybe some people don't think there is one, but I do, and there's no one here in my office to debate me. I also wanna say that some of you are thinking that the answer to this question is to improve people's mental health. And I will not accept that answer because while it looks really good and clear if you're looking through the lens of the medical model, it actually just raises more dizzying questions. Improve people's mental health, okay, what's that? What's the mind? What's consciousness? How do you assess the health of someone's consciousness? These are huge philosophical questions that are beyond the scope of what I'm trying to look at here. So no, I reject that answer. I think a better answer is that the one big goal of therapy, the thing we are all trying to do is to mitigate human suffering. I think human suffering is a more tangible and accessible concept than mental health. I think it's a more culturally universal concept, and it's not based on the superimposition of a biomedical model that not only is very new and unrefined, but rests on a quicksand of thorny philosophical problems. The goal of therapy is to mitigate human suffering. Of course, what we encounter now is that therapy is not the only goal-directed activity whose goal is to mitigate human suffering. There are many, 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 many ways to attempt to mitigate human suffering that are not therapy. Philanthropy is an attempt to mitigate human suffering and philanthropy is not therapy advocating for equity in public policy is an attempt to mitigate human suffering. And advocating for equity in public policy is not therapy. Surgery is an attempt to mitigate human suffering. And while, yes, it is therapy in an adjacent definition of the word, it's not therapy in the sense that we're talking about here. I could go on and on listing things that are intended to mitigate human suffering but aren't therapy. And actually, I think it would be a lot easier to keep listing things that therapy is not than it is to define what therapy is like list all the things that therapy is not and then whatever's left over is therapy, except for the fact that it would take a really long time, that seems easier. Don't you think that's kind of weird? Don't you think this has something to do with why we have such a hard time explaining what it is we do to people not in the field? Doesn't it pique your interest about what it is that makes the substance of this profession so ineffable? Because it really piques mine. Now, some of you are disagreeing with me or getting anxious or irritated because you've still got your hands on the medical model of therapy. Because on the surface, it gives you a better sounding explanation of your job than this morass I've led us into. And yeah, I get it. I explain my job that way too if I'm talking to my Lyft driver. I'm not talking like I am now when I'm sitting in the backseat of a car. I'm calling myself a mental health counselor and people can do what they like with that. The reason though that the medical model of therapy you know, treating mental health disorders, or however you would put it, sounds better to some of you, is not because it's more truthful. It's simply because it's a very widely accepted story. It sounds good to most people that we have a book, a catalog of mental health diagnoses, and that one of the treatments for any number of these diagnoses is therapy. And you select a diagnosis, and you tailor the therapy to that diagnosis, and you set your goals based on that and bang, bang, boom, condition treated. I know a lot of you out there are practicing like that to a greater or lesser extent. And I I wanna say that I don't think it's wrong to practice that way. I even think there are some cases in which practicing that way is probably the best thing to do. But what I'm also saying is that this model turns out overall to map onto reality quite poorly. And there are many bits and pieces of evidence that bear this out, but if we're going to maintain something resembling a focus on goal setting in this episode, let's look at just the evidence that relates to that piece. There is no evidence that therapeutic treatment planning, AKA goal setting, using the DSM and its attendant biomedical model of mental health accomplishes the broader overarching goal of mitigating your client's suffering better than any other approach. In fact, saying that there is no evidence that it's better is actually not stating the evidence strongly enough because it's not as though it hasn't been researched and there is simply a dearth of evidence. It has been researched and over and over again, we don't see significant differences in outcomes based on approach. Now here's where it really gets interesting. The research isn't showing that goals simply don't matter in the therapeutic process. They're not saying that goals don't influence the outcome in any way. Goals do influence the outcome of therapy, but not via their content. Goals influence the outcome of therapy as a function of the therapeutic alliance. What seems to matter to the outcome of therapy is how successfully the therapeutic dyad that's the therapist and the client, negotiates, collaborates, and agrees upon the goals and the tasks they undertake to accomplish those goals of their particular course of therapy. I really want you to sit for a minute with how weird that is. To distill it further, the implication of that body of research is that the goals themselves are rather arbitrary and that it's the process of deciding upon them and working towards them effectively together that influences the outcome of mitigating human suffering in these cases where we do. I think that's pretty fucking weird. And I think it's not true of those things I listed that are not therapy. I think this is, if not the differentiating factor between therapy and not therapy. It's certainly a very significant one. If you're a philanthropist trying to mitigate human suffering, my impression is that the specific content of the goal you are working towards is very important. If you're trying to mitigate human suffering by advocating for equity in public policy, the specific content of the goal you are working towards in that milieu is likewise very important. If you're a surgeon doing surgery, I think we would all agree what your specific goal is in doing a surgery to mitigate someone's suffering is a crucial determining factor of the satisfactoriness of the outcome. But for us, no, we are using what the research says are relatively arbitrary goals in the service of mitigating human suffering, and it works pretty well most of the time. Now let us ask the question, what are other situations in which people use relatively arbitrary goals to create satisfactory outcomes that are tangential, if not entirely irrelevant to the content of those goals? The only answer that I can think of is games. I think we all know that there is a sense of unreality to therapy. The concepts of transference and countertransference themselves, which remain ubiquitous, even outside the psychoanalytic circles in which they originated, allude to this unreality by articulating the layers and layers of roles that therapists and clients evoke in and enact with one another. I know for sure I'm not the only therapist who instinctively reaches for the term in real life to contrast what happens outside my sessions to what happens inside them. As in, I think I might have been friends with that client if I had met them in real life. And of course, this is not to say that this unreality means that what happens inside our sessions is not serious, not important, not real in its own way. I feel more real in some of my sessions than I do a lot of the time in my life outside them. And I know this is true for our clients sometimes too. To hearken back to episode 16 in my first season, it is sometimes the trappings of artifice that make our deepest experiences of authenticity possible. The definition of a game is a subject about which there has been a surprising amount of debate, a debate that I happen to be privy to early in life because my high school boyfriend was a budding philosophy major. So with apologies to Wittgenstein, I'm going to sidestep that debate and offer you the definition crafted by the philosopher Bernard Suits. And it's pretty granular, so bear with me here. To play a game is to engage in activity directed towards bringing about a specific state of affairs using only means permitted by specific rules, where the means permitted by the rules are more limited in scope than they would be in the absence of the rules, and where the sole reason for accepting such limitation is to make possible such activity. Therapy is a game. We accept the rules of engagement, our ethical codes and therapeutic boundaries and so forth, by which the means with which we engage with our clients are then limited and we accept those limitations simply because they make this specific kind of therapist-client play possible. Therapy is a game through which we facilitate play that at its best indirectly mitigates human suffering. To call an activity a game or to refer to the contents of that activity as play is not to say that it is trivial. Play and games are universal to all human cultures and predate human culture in the non-human animal world. We are entering a renewed awareness right now of the importance of play in child development that ample time spent in free play is crucial to a child's success in later engagement in other kinds of goal-directed activities. Play is a precursor to practice, which is the precursor to any kind of meaningful expertise. The ability to play is always a precondition of the willingness to tolerate the uncertainty of experimentation and thereby to create any kind of meaningful innovation. Simple games of roughhousing are instrumental to building the relational intelligence of social mammals as the mammals involved learn from their play what boundaries can be crossed and which are inviolable and as the stronger or more powerful party self-handicaps to create the illusion of an equal playing field, which precipitates trust between the parties involved. Essentially, the more powerful participant in the game uses play to say implicitly to the less powerful participant, we both know I could hurt you here, but I'm not going to. Does that implicit message feel familiar to you? particularly from your more intense and transformative therapeutic relationships, because it feels very familiar to me. In the first chapter of the poet Diane Ackerman's remarkable book, Deep Play, which I will link to in the show notes. She begins by quoting the Dutch historian Johan Huizinga, who says, play is an activity which proceeds within certain limits of time and space, in a visible order, according to rules freely accepted, and outside the sphere of necessity or material utility. The play mood is one of rapture and enthusiasm and is sacred or festive in accordance with the occasion. A feeling of exaltation and tension accompanies the action. Ackerman goes on to say, for humans, play is a refuge from ordinary life, a sanctuary of the mind where one is exempt from life's customs, methods, and decrees. Play always has a sacred place, some version of a playground in which it happens. The hallowed ground is usually outlined so that it's clearly set off from the rest of reality. This place may be a classroom, a sports stadium, a stage, a courtroom, a coral reef, a workbench in a garage, a church or a temple, a field where people clasp hands in a circle under the new moon. Play has a time limit, which may be an intense but fleeting moment, the flexible innings of a baseball game, or the exact span of a psychotherapy session. Play is an activity enjoyed for its own sake. It is our brain's favorite way of learning and maneuvering. Play may have different strengths, not all of them mystical and soul stealing. But even in its least intoxicating forms, play feels satisfying, absorbing, and has rules and a life of its own while offering rare challenges. It gives us the opportunity to perfect ourselves. It's organic to who and what we are, a process as instinctive as breathing. Much of human life unfolds as play. Deep play is the ecstatic form of play. In its thrall, all the play elements are visible, but they're taken to intense and transcendent heights. Thus, deep play should really be classified by mood, not activity. It testifies to how something happens, not what happens. Creativity, psychotherapy, sensation seeking, all are ideal playgrounds for deep play. How can psychotherapy be experienced as deep play? All play happens in a special mental place with time limits and rules beyond everyday life. It contains uncertainty, illusion, an element of make believe or fantasy and allows one to take risks or explore new roles. Psychoanalyst DW Winnicott who spent a lifetime enthralled by the study of children understood the value of engaging in the distinctive play of psychotherapy. And here Ackerman quotes Winnicott. Psychotherapy takes place in the overlap of two areas of playing, that of the patient and that of the therapist. Psychotherapy has to do with two people playing together. Psychoanalysis has been developed as a highly specialized form of playing in the service of communication with oneself and others. Ackerman goes on, British therapist Robin Skinner finds similarities between the dangerous exhilaration of his work and his experience flying mosquito bombers during World War II. During counseling sessions, he would sometimes recognize the same feeling of being absolutely attentive and completely there that he used to feel at the moment when he was going to drop a bomb. In both instances, I was dealing with something of an explosive nature. In therapy, the aim is to diffuse the bomb, rather than try to escape from it or be blown up. It's very risky and exciting. I doubt that such high wire intensity occurs in every session with every patient, but among the many rewards of his profession, therapy offers Skinner an opportunity for deep play. And there I'm going to stop quoting Ackerman, but I highly recommend you go read the chapter I just quoted from or even the whole book. It's so good. To illustrate what games and the game of therapy in particular make possible and what is possible for us to see when we view therapy this way, I'm going to describe a different game, the game of hearts. If you've played the card game hearts, you know that the object of the game, the goal, is to win by accumulating the least number of points. That's it. On its own, that's not very interesting. And I'm not going to bore you by recounting the gameplay rules of hearts here, the tasks, if you will, but let's just pretend I've done that. Object of the game, get the fewest points, process of the game, play cards by the rule of the gameplay. So technically, I've just told you what the game of hearts is. But here's something else that hearts is. Hearts is a game that my dad and I both like to play. It requires four players, but it kind of doesn't matter to me who the other two players are. It can be whoever, as long as it's also me and my dad playing. What my technical description of the game of hearts didn't describe is that as soon as I think about playing this game with my dad, my heart starts racing. I feel my body gearing up for something exciting and interesting that happens in our play. The playing field of hearts provides an opportunity for my father and I to enact something emotionally and relationally true from our dyad in a stylized and contained way. In the game, we get to be an overt competition. In the game, we get to vie openly for who is smarter, more powerful, more cunning, bigger. In the game, we get to make explicit our suspicion and scrutiny of one another. In the game, we get to express our aggressive impulses, to play loser and winner to each other without harm being done. It's exhilarating and mundane, risky and safe, meaningful and trivial, all at the same time. To me, this illustrates something important about what we're really doing when we set goals in therapy. I'm not saying you should go out there and embrace absolutely chaotic energy by telling your clients that the goal of therapy is to win by accumulating the fewest points or something else utterly random, not least because your clients would probably think you were a lunatic, which wouldn't strengthen the therapeutic alliance. What I am saying is that instead of viewing the therapeutic process as what we create to serve the established goals, We would perhaps be better served by seeing the goals as something we establish to serve the therapeutic process in the same way that the goal of the game of hearts serves the rich experience I just described having with my dad. In a game, the play does not exist to accomplish the goals of the game. The game exists to facilitate the experience of the play. And the goals and tasks of therapy are only as valuable as the depth and impact of the play they enable us and our clients to experience. The play that when we make enough of the right kind of contact with it, has the power to substantively mitigate human suffering. Thank you for being here with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. If you're picking up what I'm putting down here, please go ahead and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, if you haven't done that yet, as well as reading and reviewing the show so we can reach more people who could use a little shaking up when it comes to their ideas about therapy. And of course, keep sharing the show with your therapist friends who might like to come and do a little deep play with us here. As always, you can find me, revest out at intothewoodsportland.com. I always welcome your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course you're a therapist, can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or by sending me a voice note to Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.